Good morning, everybody. Um, I hope you all enjoyed the replay party last night and you're feeling fresh and ready and energized for the last day of reInvent 2018. Now, have you ever wished that you could look back in time at the data in your database and see how it changed and see what happened that caused it to get into the current state it's in? And I mean really kind of dive into the details of what happened, look at the precise transactions that were executed, when they were executed, what they did, and know that everything that you're looking at is 100% accurate and correct. I'm Chris, and this is Andrew, and we're here to talk to you about Quantum Ledger Database, or QLDB, our new database service that is designed to help with exactly that problem. Now, as you probably heard in Andy's keynote on Wednesday, QLDB is a new class of ledger database service that is designed to keep a complete and verifiable history of all changes to your application data. QLDB makes it simple to explore your data history or data lineage and see how your application has evolved over time. And this, in turn, makes it easy to build system of record type applications or applications where having that complete history that is verifiable is critical. Now, we built QLDB to deal with these problems of building system of record applications. And these are problems that we've seen several of our customers face, and indeed, we've actually faced them ourselves. But it turns out that we're definitely not the first people to have to deal with these problems. And for pretty much the past 5,500 years, when you look at civilizations all around the world, uh, people have been dealing with this challenge of keeping accurate records and verifiable history for a very long time. Going back as far as 3,500 BC to ancient Mesopotamia, one of the very first known forms of writing called cuneiform writing was invented. The Mesopotamians would carve shapes and symbols into stone or set them into wet clay to record data and would write down a wide range of information in this way. This clay tablet over here is uh, believed to be from around 3100 BC and actually records information of the distribution of grain or barley from a large temple to the people surrounding it. The dashed lines that you can see which were embedded with reeds in the clay when it was wet denote the kind of goods that they were talking about. The, the little peg holes in the, in the tablet talk about the numerical values and kind of denote how much of the goods were being distributed. And there are many other examples like this in museums around the world to this day. Now, as the writing form evolved over the years, it became more and more used uh, more broadly in conducting business and recording business agreements and legal proceedings and things like that. And the Mesopotamians realized that they needed a way of really establishing the kind of authenticity of the documents they were writing. And they actually invented one of the first forms of signing that, that we know about, which is called a cylinder seal. Each person who was interested in writing a document or participating in a document would have a cylinder which had a bunch of shapes embedded on it 
And when a document had been written in the wet clay, they would kind of roll the cylinder across the clay and thereby embed their signature, much like we do with you know, a normal signature today or a digital signature on computers, and attest to the authenticity of the document and the fact that they were actually present at the time and you know, that they had signed it and agreed to the contents. The Torthin uh, tablet on the right of the screen uh, is the proceeding from a court case about ownership dispute of some or other thing. And it contains testimony from witnesses, which is then signed with their cylinder seals. The square tablet on the left actually recorded a loan of some silver from one person to another. And it covered the terms of the loan, how much silver was loaned, what the repayment terms were. And again, it was signed by the participants to establish the authenticity so that at a later, at a later stage, you could go back and verify that the loan really did happen and that the person really should repay the silver. Moving forward another thousand or so years, and we get to ancient Egypt. And the Egyptians are very well known for their hieroglyphs. They would paint them into, onto stone or carve them into stone. Um, and they would record a wide range of information in this way, things like tax information, business dealings, stories, and so on. But perhaps more importantly, actually, is that they invented one of the first known forms of paper writing using a paper called papyrus. Papyrus writing was fairly prevalent in ancient Egypt and, again, was used to record a range of information. This example here is actually a letter from a believed to be a middle-class ancient Egyptian recording details about a lease that he wanted to take out on some land, discussing the price of the lease relative to some other land, and talking about rations that needed to be provided to people. In fact, historians actually credit this uh, prevalence of writing and record-keeping as one of the reasons that the ancient Egyptian civilization was able to be as successful as it was the pharaohs and the scribes would be able to keep accurate track of taxes, surplus resources, where they distributed resources to, and this enabled the pharaohs to use their resources much, much more efficiently in the pursuit of their goals and objectives. Move forward another 3,000 years, and we get to one of the most pivotal moments, really, in record-keeping, which is the advent or formalization of double-entry accounting or double-entry bookkeeping. Indeed, this is where the concept of the ledger as we know it today and as we talk about it in the context of, of our product and <clears throat> many blockchain or distributed ledger products actually comes from. Before the double-entry accounting approach was invented and became used, business owners would have a very difficult time of analyzing their business and understanding how it was performing, which parts of it were performing well, and which parts of it wouldn't. They would struggle to keep track of where money was coming from, where it was being spent, and at the end of each month, they would know whether they had turned a profit or a loss, but they wouldn't really know why. With double-entry accounting, the idea was that every time any money left your business or you spent any money, you would debit one account with 
the amount that you had spent in credit another account with the equal amount, similarly when you received money. And this made it easy at the end of the month to go back and kind of check that everything that you'd spent reconciled with everything that you recorded in the other accounts and essentially balance the books, which is where the term comes from. And in doing so, this actually created a complete audit trail of every single change that happened in businesses' finances and made it really easy for the business owners to dig in and see where money was going, what it was being spent on, and ultimately drive substantially higher business efficiency. They would you know nowhere to double down on investments, nowhere to cut back, know which parts of the business to, to close, and so on. And indeed, this has had such a significant impact that to this day, most businesses around the world still use double entry accounting or some form of it to manage their finances. And this brings us to record keeping today. Now, a lot has changed over the past few thousand years, but record keeping and maintaining an accurate history of of business details and transactions and things that have happened is still really fundamental to everything we do. And in many cases, it's a lot more pervasive and a lot more important than it has ever been. And there are several examples across a range of industries when you look at them where it's clear that maintaining accurate and complete historical records is critical. Banking and finance, for example, the obvious one here is recording for anybody's bank account the debits and credits that happen on the account or the past transactions. Keeping track of all of these is important so that people can reconcile how much money they have at the end of the month or understand exactly where their money has been spent and where they've gotten it from. Or if there's a dispute about a transaction, you know, I, I, I say I paid you, you say I didn't, and you know, we can go back to these records and verify what actually happened. But there are other examples too. Take a loan application process, for example. This, this process or, or a loan application goes through many different stages of process and recording the details of the process is important, again, so that if there's ever a dispute about what happened, we can go back and look at the, look at the truth and resolve the dispute. E-commerce has several examples. Perhaps the most obvious of which is if somebody buys something from an online retailer, tracking everything from the moment they click the buy button to the moment it arrives at their door. Tracking the fulfillment process in the warehouse when you know, the pickers pick the item, the packers pack it, they send it off to the shipping network and ultimately arrives. This is critical so that if a customer doesn't get the item that they ordered or they get the wrong size of shoes or, or something else goes wrong, the business can kind of dive into the details of exactly what happened during the fulfillment of that item, understand precisely where things went wrong, and correct their process so that they can deliver a better customer experience and also drive improved efficiency in their business. But customers also expect online retailers to keep a complete history of all their orders. They want to know everything they purchased, when they purchased it, how much they paid for it, when it was delivered, and they expect that to be complete, correct, and accurate. In the transport and logistics space, 
especially as the world becomes more globalized and more assets and more inventory move across the world, cross more borders, go between more different transport networks, it's critical for businesses to be able to keep an accurate order trail of where all their goods are, where their inventory or components that they're shipping are, so that if they ever find that they don't have the right, the right things that they need in you know, the warehouse or the um, <clears throat> factory when they need them, they can again go and understand exactly where things went wrong, correct the process, and you know, ensure that they actually get their goods, and ultimately drive better business efficiency and an improved customer experience for their customers. And there are several others. So what's the problem? Well, when databases and computers were first introduced in the 60s and 70s, they had this profound impact on businesses. They enabled businesses to automate many of the kind of um, you know, record keeping and administrative tasks that previously had taken a considerable amount of human effort. And this allowed businesses to move much, much faster, become more efficient, and get more done. But the databases were fundamentally built around these three core operations of insert, update, and delete. At least in part because at the time, storage was so expensive. In, in 1970, a gigabyte of storage would cost about $185,000. And so it wasn't really practical to keep a history of all the changes as they happened. And these, these update and insert and delete operations would make it really easy to permanently modify or permanently delete data in a way where there was really no way to get it back and no way to see what had happened. But the business requirements fundamentally haven't changed, and the record-keeping requirements haven't changed. And so developers have built techniques to work around these constraints. And we see use of things like order trails and order tables and record tombstoning being used fairly, fairly commonly to create these historical records of what has happened. But these come with problems. First of all, the order trails and order tables can be some of the most resource-intensive tables in a database. They tend to grow without bound, they are often bigger than any other table, and they can cause scaling problems for databases. And we see people using techniques like partition tables or pushing data to data warehouses or you know, running pruning jobs, which themselves can cause performance problems for the database. Moreover, if you're actually trying to record events in the precise order in which they happened, that causes a serialization point in your database, and modern databases are really built around the idea of being able to do operations in parallel, and this can slow your application down. At the same time, these approaches can be somewhat error-prone and can result in incomplete or incorrect historical data. If you want to create an order trail, you pretty much have to write some kind of custom code or stored procedure or database trigger, and you have to really get those right. At the same time, developers are kind of trading off between recording too much information and dealing with the scaling problems, or recording you know, just the minimal amount of information that they think they need, and running the risk of not having information that they need when they need it. Finally, 
the data in the databases, in traditional databases, is really impossible to verify cryptographically. Even if you get all those other things right, and even if you put you know, auditing mechanisms around your database, somebody with root access or sysadmin access to your database can go in there and make changes that are difficult to, difficult to identify and difficult to detect. And so, more and more often, we're seeing customers starting to experiment with the idea of using blockchain technologies or distributed ledger technologies to solve these record-keeping problems where they need kind of complete and verifiable history. And indeed, this exciting technology brings a lot in this space, and you can use it to create complete and verifiable records of everything that has happened in your application. But again, using blockchains and distributed ledgers comes with its own set of problems. Fundamentally, the blockchain was designed for a different purpose. It was really designed around the idea of building decentralized applications. That is, an application where there's no single owner, there's no one entity who owns the data, controls the application and the application logic. But rather, there's a consortium of many parties, in, in the case of cryptocurrencies, millions, but many parties who collectively own the application logic, they own the data, and they all agree upon the changes that are made to the data. But many of these applications that need record keeping don't require decentralization. A lot of the ones we looked at earlier aren't fundamentally decentralized applications. And using a blockchain or a distributed ledger technology in a case where your application doesn't need decentralization brings a lot of additional complexity that is really unnecessary for your business. For example, applications built on blockchains typically have to integrate very tightly with the blockchain framework. In the case of Hyperledger Fabric, your application will have to use chain code quite extensively to be able to get things done. In other blockchain frameworks, things like smart contracts are used. And this really means that your application is part of the blockchain, and you, know, you have to deploy it to the blockchain network. The APIs that um, the blockchain uh, systems offer for data access are also relatively simplistic and low level. And this means that to get the same kind of functionality that you can get from a traditional database, you have to write a lot more application code. <coughs> for the same reasons, applications built on blockchains can also be more difficult to maintain than traditional applications. The tight coupling between your application code and the blockchain means you have to really be careful about deployment. Things have to be deployed in a very coordinated fashion. Um, you, you know, it's, it's more difficult to make changes because you're working with lower level APIs. And you can look at all the forks that have happened in cryptocurrencies as evidence of just how difficult it can be to drive change in a true decentralized application. Finally, uh, applications built on blockchains can be more difficult to scale than applications built on traditional, on traditional databases. This is at least in part because the blockchains have a lot more machinery to enable the decentralized consensus algorithms, but the net result is that they have lower scaling ceilings in terms of throughput and typically in terms of storage size as well. And all of this together means that if you choose to build an application on a blockchain and your application doesn't really need decentralization, you end up spending a lot more time and effort 
building your application than you would otherwise. And this is why we chose to build Amazon QLDB. Amazon QLDB is built on tried and tested Amazon technology that was purpose-built for building system of record applications that are reliable at scale. With QLDB, you get data immutability for all of your historical data. Every time you write a transaction, it is committed to an append-only journal, and it cannot be modified or deleted at a later stage. The data written to the QLDB journal is also cryptographically verifiable. This means that at some point in the future, you can go back and you can look at any one of your transactions and you can prove that it hasn't been modified since you wrote it. Having the full history of your data brings transparency to your application. It's easy to look at how your data has evolved, look at how, your, you know, how the contents of your system have changed, and know that what you're looking at is complete and 100% correct. QLDB is also fast. It scales with your application, and it performs with low latency. And this means you don't need to make that trade-off between having a high-performance, scalable application on the one hand, and an application where you get verifiability and complete history on the other hand. And finally, we've built QLDB to be really easy to use. It comes with a familiar SQL API. It supports a document data model that lets you uh, store structured and unstructured data easily. And it offers full transactional ACID functionality. Additionally, QLDB is serverless, meaning you don't have to worry about provisioning machines or nodes or managing read or write throughput. You simply create your ledger, code up your application, and go. And with this as a backdrop, I'm going to hand over to Andrew to talk about how it really works. OK. Thanks, Chris. Um, so like Chris said, he told you about reasons why you might want to use Amazon Quantum Ledger Database. And I'm going to talk more about how QLDB really works. So um, just to start out at the very simple, a ledger um, has at its core this immutable append-only journal. Um, there you can see all the blocks on the journal. Um, I'm going to talk a lot about this later. These represent uh, coherent transactions, um, which gives you the answer to the question that I'm sure has been on a lot of your minds, which is, how is it that somebody with the name Andrew Certain is working on a product with quantum in the name? Um, but uh, the, the, the answer is that quantum here does not refer to quantum computing or quantum mechanics, but really to quantum meaning a change that has uh, no intermediate states. So um, each transaction is recorded on the ledger in this way. In addition, we have ways to query the data in, in the ledger. There's a current table. Um, there are history tables. I'll get into those more um, in a little bit later. Um, in a financial ledger, which this, we are sort of generalizing those concepts, the journal um, represents the, the actual credits and debits in an account. And then there's a summary that represents the current balances. And so we're, we're generalizing that for a database. All right, how does it work? So um, I'm going to use a Department of Motor Vehicles example for a while. Um, we want to register cars, and we want to make sure that we have the complete history of all those cars. 
All right, so here's a super simple ledger that they might have created. It's only got one table, the cars table. So you can see here the journal and the two different views we have of this table, current and history. So let's imagine that someone comes along to register a new car. Um, so what happens? The first thing that happens is the transaction is written to the journal, okay? So before any views are updated, we write it to the journal. Then we update maybe the current view and the history view. You can see here that both of these are very much the same because there's only been one thing done to the, to the, to the ledger so far. Okay, so let's imagine now Tracy comes along, she sells her car to Ronnie, and Ronnie comes into the DMV and wants to register the car. So we execute this statement. Again, the first thing that happens is we write the transaction to the journal. And I'm gonna talk a lot more about this later, um, but we hash chain these transactions together to make sure that um, the journal is immutable. Um, maybe the history table gets updated um, a little bit before the current table. My point here is that the, the key thing that happens is we update the journal and then all these derived views um, that are queryable get updated independently. Okay, finally, maybe um, this car gets totaled or uh, Ronnie moves out of state so it gets registered in a different state. And so we're gonna delete this uh, car from the, from the DMV database. Um, so we delete it from the current, but in the history, we have some sort of tombstone. Um, I'm not gonna get super into the details. I, I wrote sort of deleted here. Uh, as Chris mentioned, and as I'll talk about some more, we have a document data model, um, so we have a little bit more flexibility than a, a classic relational model, even though I drew it this way just for familiarity. Um, so that's, that's how the DMV application would work on QLDB. Now, I wanna walk you through a scenario about where this really um, might be important for the customers, but first let me sort of uh, um, compare that to what it would look like if they were using a more traditional relational database. So they still have the same two tables, um, a current and a history, but now when we insert into the, the tables, we insert directly, say, into the current table, and we need some way to get the history table updated. Um, as Chris mentioned, this could be that applications have to remember, hey, whenever I do something to the current table, I write it to the history table. Um, some databases have some MVCC that you can take advantage of. Um, I'm gonna imagine that they have a trigger with a store procedure that updates the history version. Okay, then um, same thing, Tracy sells the car to Ronnie. We update the current state. Our store procedure uh, creates some version of the history. Uh, history. And then again, the car is removed from the database. And here, um, you know, I don't know if you know about the columns or what, but again, in the relational database, you have a few more constraints in how you represent the data. My, my main point here is that um, the, this process is not built into the database. There are many different databases have solutions for how it gets built on top, but it's not fundamental to the database. In addition, there may be some system logs, um, audit logs. These could be in human-readable format. They might be in XML. Um, again, the point is these are sort of added on to the traditional database. All right. So with that as our backdrop, let's, let's go and talk about like what does verifiability really mean? All right, so um, let's imagine that the police are investigating an old crime and they find a clue that this car was used in a crime on August 2nd, 2013. 
which was the day before Tracy sold the car to Ronnie. So they go and they arrest Tracy, um, and it goes to trial, but Tracy's lawyer claims that this is all a big setup, that actually the car was sold on August 1st, so it should be Ronnie they should be putting in jail. So here's the big question that we have to answer, which is, when was this car actually sold, August 1st or August 3rd? All right, so first thing that, that happens is the prosecution puts Ronnie up on the stand, so Ronnie shows his receipt from the DMV. It clearly shows that the car was sold on August 3rd. But of course, Tracy's lawyer just says, well, hold on, you could have just printed that at home. You know, how do we know that that's really true? So the next thing that happens is that the prosecution calls the DMV database engineer to the stand. Maybe this isn't completely realistic. Um, uh, but, um, but they ask her, uh, you know, is Ronnie's receipt valid? And she says, yes, I swear that this receipt is an actual receipt issued from the DMV. But Tracy's lawyer, of course, puts out that she could be lying. So then the prosecution asks her to show the database tables, the system logs, the audit tables, to prove that this really happened on August 3rd. And so she does all that. Remember, we're in the, in the traditional case here. Um, so then Tracy's lawyer asks, well, hold on. Could somebody of your skill and access have modified all these records to change the data? And she says yes. So that's sort of the end of the line in many uh, traditional databases. So what could happen if, she, if the DMV were using QLDB? So remember, you know, when we're talking about how it works, so the first thing is when Eve makes this query of the history tables, she can say there are no instructions in the API to modify the history tables directly. The only thing that the history tables do is reflect changes that are made in the journal. Second, there's no API to modify journal entries. Okay, the only thing you can do is execute statements that append to the journal. And so she can say there's no super user or admin rights that would allow me to modify this. Um, but beyond that, the journal is actually cryptographically uh, um, hashed to ensure immutability. And so I want to talk, this is really fundamental to what we do, so I want to talk a little while about what that really means and how it works. Okay. So here's our first transaction on the journal. Um, as the transaction is being submitted, all the data in the transaction is put through a cryptographic hash function. These functions are designed to take input data and convert them into a signature or hash or digest that reflects the information in that, uh, in that data. And I'll explain all that more as we go on. Um, so here we're using SHA-256, which is one of these functions. It's readily available on most computer platforms. Um, it's actually defined by the National Institute of Standard and Technology. Um, so it's not some you know, proprietary thing that Amazon has invented. This is a well-known algorithm. OK, so we take the data in the transaction. We compute the SHA-256, and we get this number. So that's that H of T1 in the little purple box that, that I showed earlier. All right, well, what about the second transaction? Um, okay, we, we write it to the journal, or it's about to be written to the journal. Okay, so if we put that transaction through SHA-256, we get the number you see, but um, we're forgetting something, which is the hash chaining that we talked about before. So um, instead of just putting each transaction's data into the hash function, we also append the hash value for the previous transaction into the hash function. And so this is actually the value that we get for H of T2. 
Uh, and then similarly, uh, we do that for the last transaction. So getting back to the, the trial scenario, um, you know, when, when Tracy's asked, okay, well, but how do we know that um, somebody didn't modify this journal after the fact? Um, we can look at this H of T2 value. So let's imagine that you know, somehow this date was changed from 8.3 to 8.1 in this metadata, right? So this is just a very small one-bit change in the data. Um, however, one of the, the important characteristics of a cryptographic hash function is very small changes to the input data cause very large and unpredictable changes to the output data. So when you run this new transaction through the uh, SHA-256, you get this completely different hash value. So the first thing she could say is, well, you know, they went in and they changed this transaction, if, you know, but the hash value is different, okay, we know that, that something has gone wrong. And so since that didn't happen, we know, hey, this transaction has not been tampered with. And um, as you guys, uh, as I've said, you know, SHA-256 is very well known. I want to show you, like, how easy it is for anybody to compute these. Again, this isn't something that you need to, you know, download some a massive client from Amazon to do. Uh, it's defined by NIST, so you could actually implement it yourself if you want. Um, it's on most computer programs so, or platforms, so when I was making this presentation, uh, I literally just used the SHA-256 sum utility on my Linux laptop. And uh, I know some of you are thinking, how could we make such an awesome PowerPoint presentation on a Linux laptop? Um, uh, the answer is I have an Amazon Workspaces uh, Windows machine. I encourage you all to do the same. Uh, there are also a lot of um, online uh, SHA-256 uh, computation engines. Here's one, for example, that you could download and use. And um, they say when you're doing a presentation, you should never do a live demo, but um, let's try. Has anybody been checking my hash values, by the way? Uh, let's see how they are. Okay, so this is just this online page that um, gives you uh, SHA-256. Um, this and paste. Uh oh. This is why you don't do online demos, right? Oh, I bet JavaScript's not enabled. Oh well, that's why you don't do online demos. Um, you can try it yourself. All right, um, if you really want to understand how SHA-256 works, I encourage you to check out this blog post um, uh, where he will teach you how to compute a SHA-256 by hand. Um, it'll take you the better part of a day to do it, um, but you will really understand how SHA-256 works. Okay, so again, um, this is really critical to understanding how our uh, immutability and verifiability works, so I want to run one more example through. So um, let's imagine that instead of changing the date, we go to that first transaction and we change the Tracy with an I to Tracy with a Y. Now, um, in UTF-8, this just so happens to be another one-bit change. Um, so one thing you might ask is, uh, well, why doesn't somebody, if they're trying to make this change, um, just maybe add some extra data into the block or change something else so that it ends up being the same hash value. And 
This is the second critical component of a cryptographic hash function, which is it is computationally infeasible to compute a pre-image, that is, to know what you want the output to be and to figure out what the input should be. And just for context, this is really at the core of Bitcoin mining. So um, in Bitcoin, uh, you are trying to find a pre-image to match a particular prefix of a SHA-256. So right now, it's 80 bits. So you have to match the first 80 bits of a SHA prefix. So that's about a third of it. Um, Bitcoin right now is running at about 2 to the 64th hashes per second. That's about 40 quintillion hashes per second. And it takes them 10 minutes to find this, OK? So um, and it, each bit that you add that you need to match, it doesn't just you know, if you've matched a third, it doesn't take you three times as long to match the whole thing. Each bit basically doubles the amount of computing power or time that it would take. So um, it's sort of heat death of the universe kind of time frames that we're, that we're talking about. Okay, so let's imagine still that this happened and um, they change this one and then this one gets changed and then this one gets changed. And so how do you really know, you know, that, that nothing has changed? Well, so fortunately, if you just save any of these hash values, right, so I saved the, the last one that I saw. Then from that point, I can go and recheck every single transaction up to that point. And as, if that last hash value is the same, we know that not a single transaction anywhere in the changes, anywhere in the chain has changed. So um, this is really what we mean by verifiability, is that any, any possible change in the log is immediately detectable by anyone. OK. So. Um, that's, that's what I want to say about uh, the journal and immutability. Now I want to talk about um, our data model. Um, I'm going to go back in time a little bit, not quite as far back as Chris went, um, but like to the 1960s and 70s. Um, and I'm also going to use an e-commerce example, so customers, orders, order items instead of the DMV example. So when databases were first coming out, um, the way that data models were constructed were really to take the same data structures that people were using in their applications and map them into the database. And so, um, you know, when we choose uh, data structures for applications, it's often about, well, how am I going to access the data and how do I navigate from one piece of data to another? And so this was sort of the natural thing to do for databases. The problem is that when I'm building an application and I decide to change the data structures that I'm using, you know, I fire up the application again and I load the data structures in memory, it, it's not very costly. Once I've written them to disk, and especially you know, the medium uh, that they had in the 1960s and 70s, it was very hard to change the data structures on disk. So this, this caused a lot of, of problems until um, the relational data model was invented. And Obviously, given the dominance of that data model for databases over the last 30, 40 years, that was a great innovation. And it really freed developers up from having to think about how am I going to navigate my data ahead of time? Um, because I don't have to decide, are customers subordinate to orders or are orders subordinate to customers ahead of time? One of the key innovations of the relation data model is everything is a top-level entity, right? And so the way you assemble different um, queries is that you match these things together in relations, and so you don't have to decide ahead of time how you're going to uh, populate your data structures. Now, of course, with this innovation came another problem, which is the ob object relational mapping problem, which I'm sure all of you have had to deal with, which is, okay, well, 
yes, it's great that I have this flexibility in my data model, but I have actual data structures that I need to load, and now we need to map between the two things. And actually, um, with modern programming languages, this problem has gotten worse uh, because many modern languages allow you to define these nested data structures um, very natively, very idiomatically. So let's imagine that this is an ordered data structure. Now you can mix these two ways of, of um, having the data structures. So you can see like the customer is actually a pointer to some separate data structure, um, whereas the shipping address and the list of order items are nested within this document. And I know that if any of you have tried to store these things in relational databases, you know that it can be tricky, which is why we chose a document data model for QLDB. Um, so this might be the document data model for the data structure I just showed you. So you can see that customer ID is still just an identifier. Um, so maybe that gets loaded in some other table or stored in some other table. Whereas the address and the, the list of order items are literally stored in the document. And so now I'm sure you guys are all wondering, well, wait a second, you said it's SQL, um, but now you're telling me it's this document data model. How does that work? Um, I'm not going to go into it a ton, but um, here's some uh, quick examples. So let's imagine that you have the traditional relational data model. Um, and uh, so you've got an orders table and an addresses table, and you want to find all the orders that are being shipped to Washington State. So you execute a query similar to this. There's obviously many forms that you, know, you could write this query in, but let's look at this one. So here um, we have the orders table and the addresses table. Uh, we have this join condition on the bottom, and then we have our selection criteria that say, you know, I want to see the orders where the state field in the address record is Washington. Okay, so how might you do this in the document data model? Okay, so the first thing is there's no addresses table, so we get rid of that. Um, so how do you uh, how do you create the the selection criteria? Okay, so we've extended SQL just with this dot notation. So um, if you want to look into nested fields, um, it's you know pretty intuitive. You just say, okay, well, I want to get something out of the shipping address, and I want that the state field out of that. And then finally, obviously, we don't need a join condition. I'll wait for the cameras to get done. Okay. Um, all right, so uh, what about um, another query? So here we um, want to get all of the orders with items for a given customer. And again, you can see that here's what um, the traditional SQL might look like. So we have the orders table, we have the order items table, we have this join condition on the bottom and a selection criteria right after the where statement. And how's this gonna look like in QLDB? Um, so again, we don't have an order items table. Um, but we have this as a field within the order, right? So um, again, you can, we've extended SQL to allow you to specify nested uh, documents as join tables, essentially. And this is really the fundamental insight, I think, um, that we, not me, but other people at Amazon had, um, which is um, when, you're, when you're looking at nested documents, and, and you're thinking about them in relation to join tables, they really are in some ways duels of each other, right? And so um, you can think of it as, well, I have this foreign key from the subordinate table, or you can think of it as nesting, and, and we've tried to leverage that syntax um, throughout uh, QLDB. All right, so we've, um, we've changed the, the table description. 
Um, and then obviously we just don't need the join statement. Again, the joins are sort of implicit in that the, the items that you care about are already nested within that document. So now this statement is going to literally return you a result set which has one item for every order item, just like the SQL did. So you'll get order and order item, the same order, the other order item, just like you would in traditional SQL. Obviously, because it's a document data model, you could just drop the um, nesting, and then you would get a single result per order with the nested structure. Um, I wish I had time to talk to you about all the other sort of really interesting things about QLDB. Um, we could talk about our transaction isolation model. Um, we could talk about scaling. We could talk a ton more about schema. Um, in the preview, we will be supporting purely open content, which means that um, your documents can be stored with whatever fields you want. We will certainly be adding support for more restrictive schema. That's, I think, super important for developers to be able to define things. One of the reasons that we want you all to sign up for Preview, and Chris will talk about this some more, is we want to get your feedback. We're a very customer-driven company, of course. And so um, as we develop these, this functionality, we're going to rely on your feedback on you know, what things are important, what things are working, what things aren't. And so I really encourage you to sign up for the Preview. With that, I'm going to turn it back over to Chris. Thank you, Andrew. Um, I promise to stay in the present day for the rest of the talk. Uh, so where should you really consider using QLDB? Well, we, we talked about a bunch of examples of record keeping earlier in the talk, but I wanted to talk just a bit more about the right kind of places to think about using this product because it's new and because it's different to really anything else that's out there today. Fundamentally, we think that QLDB is appropriate for where you're building system of record applications or ledger-like applications where you need to keep that complete history or potentially need to verify your history and where the application is centralized, meaning you or your organization or your company is the single owner of the application and has the authority to change it in the way that they want and really owns all of the data. In addition to the cases we talked about earlier, you could consider using QLDB in things like HR and payroll. For example, keeping track of employees in a company, when they, when they joined, their job titles, promotions, compensation changes, accrual of time off, you know, using time off, things like hours, if you have, a, if you have employees who you know, clock in and clock out, you may want to record exactly when they're working so that you can pay them correctly and know that you've paid them correctly and be able to really prove it, and so on. Another example is if you're in manufacturing and perhaps you manufacture the kind of goods where recalls are an you know, unfortunate reality of life and they can happen. For example, if you're manufacturing cars or maybe drugs or something like that. And you want to be able to keep a really accurate and precise order trail for every batch of product you create or for every individual product you create of what components went into it, potentially which factory it was created in, um, where on the supply, on the, um, you know, the pipeline of manufacturing each thing was installed, and potentially where each of your products was shipped to to be sold. And again, for something like this, using QLDB will give you that complete order trail so that if you ever do have to recall product, it's easy to dig in understand exactly what product of yours is affected, which ones you need to recall, and recall precisely the ones that need to come back and not kind of 
you know, pull too many things back or, you know, worse, miss some things that really do need to be recalled. And so it's really these kind of applications with centralized control where, where the data history is valuable, whether it's for, you know, debugging issues or auditing issues or being able to recall how things have changed or just because you, you need that history to understand how your business has evolved and maybe identify process improvements. And with that, I would like to invite everybody here to sign up for our preview. As Andrew mentioned, um, this, is, you know, this is a new product, it's a new space for us, and we would absolutely love to have customers working with us on figuring out how we evolve this product and the right kind of features to build onto it and so on as we work towards general availability. Thank you very much for attending. It's been a pleasure talking to you. If, if you would please take a moment to complete the session survey in the mobile app, we'd appreciate that. And Andrew and I will be hanging out up here for a little bit and then outside the venue to answer any questions, and we would love to talk to you. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>